Since the earliest days of hunting, one of the responsibilities of hunters has been to bring the spirit of the wild into the community through stories. Yes, environmental education needs to teach vocabulary, scientific concepts and principles, and natural resource management theory. We need a language to speak about ecology, but if it is not tied to stories that cultivate an interest and honest appreciation for nature, then all the well-intentioned environmental education in the world is nothing more than one more set of facts for a child to memorize, to pass a test, to get through school. More than anything else, environmental education should be a key that unlocks the art of learning to love and see nature as it really is. People can and do develop a fondness for nature on their own. Early positive experiences in nature, followed by later, more profound, almost mystical encounters with land and animals, lead to an ecological conscious rooted in love for the land. There is no substitute for inspirational people who already do love nature. James A. Swan, The Sacred Art of Hunting This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. All right. Well, thank you for being here for the first episode of Our Numinous Nature. You heard in that intro what the point of this show is going to be, but this first episode, I wanted to kind of tell you a little bit about me. I wanted to share the inspiration, the calling for this show, and tell you a little bit of my stories um, that have taken place in the natural world. So I am many things, as I'm sure you are too, but for the sake of this show, I'm an artist and illustrator. I am really into Jungian psychology. I've been in Jungian dream analysis for maybe seven, eight years now. I'm a late onset hunter. I came to hunting about three years ago, and I'm an aspiring naturalist, which seems to go hand in hand with the hunting. I want to know more and more about the natural world, and it seems infinite. Three years ago, I moved from New York City to a little cabin-type house in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. I believe we're on the outskirts of Appalachia. We can walk from this cabin door through the woods and connect to the Appalachian Trail. And if you drive down the road about 15 minutes you reach the town that is the northern entry to the Shenandoah National Park. So really live in a beautiful place, tucked away in a little hollow, up a gravel road, um, completely surrounded by plants and trees. And, you know, we've had a black bear right walk across our front steps. So really a remarkable little place. I know there are a million and one podcasts, so I really battled with whether or not this 
is worthy of making. But I was so moved by the book that we're going to hear more about in a moment that I thought there must be stories like this from everybody that has a passionate lifestyle based around nature. So an herbalist with their plants, growing their herbs, creating their tinctures, or a trapper boiling his traps, going out, catching an animal, skinning it, stretching it, and creating something with its fur. Both these people, which may somewhat seem like opposite interests, could they connect over stories of reverence with shared love of nature for what we can take from nature without ruining nature? If I could get the herbalist to listen to a story by the trapper and for the trapper to listen to a story by the herbalist, I mean, that would make me so joyful. So it might be a fool's errand, but I'm going to give it a try anyways. So what does numinous mean? Numinous is a term that I first heard in, in Carl Jung's work. If you look at uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, numinous means supernatural, supernatural or mysterious. It could mean filled with a sense of presence of divinity, holy, appealing to the higher emotions or the aesthetic sense, spiritual. In Jungian psychology, it is often used as, it, as to describe of persons, things, or situations having a deep emotional resonance. So our numinous nature, what does that mean? That means basically, what are the religious, spiritual, transcending, powerful, mystical experiences you've had with nature? Is it holding a plant? Is it the killing of an animal as a hunter? Is it being with family and having some powerful bonding with them? I don't know. Uh, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for your stories. I started reading this book by professor of ecology and psychology, James A. Swan. The book is titled The Sacred Art of Hunting, and you heard a quote from it at the beginning of this podcast. And this book is kind of something I haven't been able to find. I found lots of education about hunting. I found lots about the ethics of hunting, but I didn't really, I've been having trouble finding stuff about the soul of hunting. So this book really kind of connected with a lot of my feelings and it clarified my feelings and uh, it, it really moved me. And I cried quite a few times while reading it. Um, uh, to be honest, I cry quite a bit. I'm a Pisces and an artist. And when I feel, it's not that I cry out of sadness or crying out of despair. It's more when I get super moved by something incredibly powerful, then I feel like overwhelmed to tears. The, the best description I've ever heard of this feeling is a quote by Edgar Allan Poe. Beauty of whatever kind in its supreme development invariably excites the sensitive soul to tears. So that right there, that's 
that happens to me all the goddamn time. So it's almost a joke sometimes to me and my girlfriend. Something beautiful happens. I read some powerful story and I'm like so rocked by it. So I wanted to read two stories from this book that really moved me and made me to hear these stories made me think what are the stories of the people I have already around me that they don't necessarily tell because it's not it's not chit chat they're deep stories so let's begin with this first one here Ronald Stromstad is a wildlife biologist, the director of operations for the Western region of the United States for the conservation organization Ducks Unlimited Incorporated. His story of an encounter with a cloud of snow geese attests to the numinous power of wild geese. So here's Stromstad's account titled A Heavenly Encounter. In spite of growing up in devout Scandinavian Lutheran surroundings, I'm not a deeply religious person. My mom may remain dismayed by my poor church attendance record. I suspect that at least some of the rules of life may have rubbed off on me, sometimes in spite of my best intentions otherwise. However, in 1996, six of us witnessed a spectacle that I have often found difficult to put into words except as a religious experience. The timing of our North Dakota snow geese hunting trip was perfect. It was late October as we set 1,200 snow goose decoys in the wheat stubble field. The snow fell heavily and the temperature was only 15 degrees Fahrenheit. An Arctic wind near 30 miles per hour was pushing huge concentrations of waterfowl out of Canada and into northern North Dakota. The resulting migration phenomenon was dubbed the Grand Passage by Ducks Unlimited. In fact, the hasty retreat of millions of waterfowl in such a short time caused air traffic control radar operations to malfunction in some of the Midwest airports. The six of us lying on the frozen ground in the decoys were all wildlife biologists who had chosen waterfowl and wetlands as our area of expertise and focus. We like waterfowl and we enjoy waterfowl hunting. Mid-continent snow geese populations were already on their rapid ascent, and it wasn't unusual to have one and a half to three million birds staging in North Dakota at one time. Most of the birds can be found staging in the northern tier of counties on three national wildlife refuges, feeding morning and evening in adjacent stubble fields. The evening prior to the hunt, we scouted the area to find locations where the birds were feeding knowing that they were most likely to return to the same area in the morning. About three-quarters of a mile from the refuge boundary, we discovered a quarter section of wheat stubble seemingly covered with snow geese from end to end. Arriving back at the location at 4.30 a.m., we quickly set about the task of setting up our spread and were lying on the ground in our whites by shooting time. We didn't have to wait long for the spectacle of a lifetime, Our hope was that the geese would leave the refuge in small groups, providing a morning of shooting opportunities. What occurred, however, was the opposite. One of the fellows shouted, Here they go! And I looked toward the refuge to see a huge concentration of birds heading our way. We later guesstimated the flock of snows in the neighborhood of 30,000 to 40,000 birds. 
As they arrived at our decoy spread, they began milling and circling directly above us, just out of shooting range. The cacophony of sound was nearly deafening as tens of thousands of geese swirled above us at 80 to 100 yards. For the next several moments, we were mesmerized by the spectacle. The scene played out in slow motion, but probably lasted only 15 or 20 seconds. Then, convinced that our decoys weren't to be associated with, the birds drifted off and landed in a nearby field. For the next few moments, there was silence in our decoys as we contemplated what we had just observed and heard. Finally, one of the fellow hunters said, Oh my God. We got to our feet and quietly shuffled toward a meeting spot in the middle of the decoys. Not much was said. In retrospect, I believe we were afraid of shattering the moment. Other hunters have witnessed such a spectacle, but not a lot of them. As I reflect on those precious seconds of seeing nature in her most glorious splendor, the thought occurs to me that a non-hunter would never have the same opportunity we had to be exposed to our religious experience. I can relate to elements of this story in that I've learned that from the huge amount of time that one sits still in the woods as a hunter, where quote-unquote nothing is happening, that you see things that no one else would see. I've seen a little eastern gray fox foraging, you know, maybe 30 feet in front of me. And then it runs up a little log right by me. I wasn't even wearing camo. My face exposed. It runs by a little log by my side and just scurries on. And I just got to watch this little fox. I've had squirrels basically come right up to me, barking at me, staring at me. Literally, I would say three inches from from my side. I've watched a little chipmunk running up and down a log until it finally went to the tip of the log, stood up on its hind legs, and looked out into the woods for probably 8 to 15 minutes. And I was just like, what is this little chipmunk? What is it doing? Contemplating? You know, it's not scared at that moment of getting nailed by a hawk. I don't know what it's doing. It's just breeding the woods. Or having a deer walk by within a few feet and you're completely still and you're just watching it act in its own realm until it hits your scent and as if hitting a brick wall, it explodes with it explodes with fear, with panic. Or you get to hear crows flying over and you can hear their wings. I I had no idea that birds' wings even made a sound until I started hunting. So to hear the crow fly over and hear the like a helicopter. For me, hunting is like you're sitting inside of another universe and you're glimpsing into another world and you're partaking in another world.
So if I have to search in my first three seasons of hunting for what I would consider a mystical experience, there was a day where I was down the road from where I live. There's a WMA, a wildlife management area. So this is a public, a chunk of public land, about 4,000 acres that is open to different outdoor pursuits. So people go hiking there. Um, you can ride horses. It's open for hunting season, fishing season, trapping season. And this one day I did a full, a full day squirrel hunt about midday. So I had been there since dawn and now it's about three in the afternoon. Didn't hear anybody. Didn't see anybody. I had gotten one squirrel and I'm sitting on this ridge and it's, it's a bright winter day. And I had this feeling slowly come up in me. And first, as I sat there, a hawk flew by under the canopy, kind of at my head level. And it flew by and I had the realization that I am like the hawk. The hawk is also hunting right now. And suddenly the woods started to shimmer and started to kind of pulse as if they were breathing. Now, I haven't done very many drugs in my life. My vice when I was younger was hardcore boozing, but I really stayed away from weed and I stayed away from psychedelics and I tried some of the harder drugs and realized I had to cut that shit out because it would destroy me. So I never really got too much into the psychedelic stuff, but I've smoked a few t- smoked weed a few times and kind of had visionary states and I had done the tiniest amount of shrooms, so I guess I'm microdosing. And this feeling I was having now was kind of like that microdose of the shrooms. The woods were pulsing, and even the rock I sat on seemed to be breathing. And as I'm in this kind of euphoric state of, it had felt like God had descended for like 30 seconds and filled up these woods and everything was so fucking alive and breathing. And then right where my hand was, under these leaves, I started to see movement in the leaves going and I started to hear these little chirps and what must have been ground nesting birds were right by my side but bird sounds chirping was coming out of the ground and this moment would feel like this word numinous it felt like a mystical connectedness where I was the same thing as the rock in the woods and we've all heard these types of theories before but it's different to have felt them Now, the second example I'm going to read from the same book is more of a transformational or healing experience. And this one, wow. I mean, I cried reading this by myself. Me and my girlfriend cried when, we, when I read it to her. And when I kind of summed it up and talked it through with my uh, Jungian dream analyst, uh, I was like on the verge of tears and, and he sounded pretty moved as well. So this is a powerful one. Photojournalist Cork Graham records the time when hunting helped him heal the wounds of war. Graham's account is titled Moose Hunt Healing Heart. Crowberries in Alaska always taste best during moose season. Sarah Ceasefar calls me over to enjoy the bounty of fall that stretches down to the flat spruce covered bog. I am more interested in seeing if Sarah can, as she claims, call a moose to her rifle like her ancestors. It's a feat I've heard my Scottish ancestors could do with red deer. 
Sarah is half Athabascan, and her attractive, thick, long, black braid makes her appear as though she just stepped out of an illustration for a collection of the poems of Robert Service. Suddenly, Sarah lifts her hand, palm open. I halt. She kneels. I kneel. Freezing water seeps through my army surplus pants. My rifle, a bolt-action 280 Remington, is to my shoulder like lightning, more out of habit than desire. As memories of the Central American Rainforest War sweep through my mind, reminding me of scars I carry. I look over at Sarah. She has shaded her eyes with her hand and stares intently into a thicket of spruce surrounded by alders. Far down on the other side of the flat. Quickly, Sarah stands and waves me to follow her in a mad scramble down the hill and into the trees. Entering the first stand, we pass into a circle of open grass. A sense of peace overtakes me, much like an empty kirk in the afternoon. Sarah kneels again and I follow. This time she mumbles. It's her language, not mine, but I get the sense that she is praying for all of us, Sarah and me and the moose she hopes to kill. I might have said I am to kill, too, but my heart is not in it, even though I can think of nothing tastier than lightly grilled moose round steak. I'm more taken by the daydream-inducing beauty of the spruce and muskeg and the crisp break from the week's rains. Here he comes, Sarah startles me. I see no movement. She answers my disbelief with an index finger to her lips. Again she mumbles in prayer, in a language I wish I could speak, much like I wish I could speak Scots Gaelic as fluently as my father could. A long while passes, or so it seems, more so because of the way my mind wanders. At once, I'm thrown back into El Salvador, waist-deep in a mangrove swamp, unsuccessfully attempting to keep a good friend from bleeding to death by sucking a chest wound, and then, just as suddenly, in a firefight, shooting an FMLN gorilla as he charges me with a raised machete. He falls like a wet sheet. There is no drama in my memory, just sadness, and a feeling that I have left a part of myself in a tropical swamp. The pressure of a hand on my shoulder brings me back to Alaska and Sarah's smile. It was Sarah's own spiritual teacher who suggested she hunt to deal with the darkness of her sexual abuse and guilt and her own resulting post-traumatic stress. Sarah had told me how, at first, she had paid homage to the animal she killed through prayer and rejoiced in the food that the animal's body would give her. She transferred the release of guilt of killing to the guilt she had felt from her childhood experience. Continuing to hunt throughout the rest of her life, she never again felt the same type of guilt or lack of love for herself that so many times brought her close to suicide. The unmistakable clatter of antler against branches draws me to stare at the large behemoth suddenly before us, only ten feet away. Take your time, Sarah whispers. I shake my head. Somehow, proximity of the spike moose and the big black eyes that stare down at me as though I were a child character in Dr. Doolittle makes me falter as I bring the rifle to my shoulder. The moose is so close that I can't even use the scope on my rifle that's set to its lowest power of three. Hoarsely, I whisper back, You take him. She glares at me. Don't disrespect us all by turning down this offering. I put my cheek back against the stock and squeeze the trigger, breaking the silence. Dropping to the muskeg, but with the smallest of sound, the moose lays on its side. I am stunned, 
not only by the size of the animal that must now be butchered, but by the ease with which this kill has happened. Sarah takes my hand and touches it to the blood that flows from an initial burst to a barely noticeable leak and wipes my cheeks with the warm blood. She then asks me to smear the blood on her cheeks too. In a daze I do so, and then she prays. I look back out onto the bog and and am reminded of Scotland and the peace my picked and Gaelic ancestors must have felt before the English came. I want to join in, but again, I don't know the words. This time, though, it doesn't seem to matter because I feel the words come to me. Thank you, O great moose. Thank you for all you offer. Suddenly, a low whimpering catches my attention. I am caught by surprise because I realize that the sobbing is not Sarah's, but mine. Tears stream down my face. And try that I may, I can't hold them back as they release the sudden stabbing in my heart. My thoughts jump to the realization that when I've been angry lately, the feeling of anger was not only the result of whatever experience may have naturally come up, but also the extra impact of never before having dealt with the emotions resulting from my experience as a media member in the Central American War. I am suddenly aware of how this kill and the tears that I feel for this moose are not only for the moose, but also for those I killed in combat. Meditating more, I tell myself, as Sarah told me to do, that the two are one. And the tears I wash with now are in thanks to the moose and to those who died so that I may now live. From under a cut she makes in the moose's hide, Sarah draws a piece of dark red meat. The chuck looks like a ruby. It bears no resemblance to the meat I've bought so many times in the supermarket, which so often looks like it has been slightly sprayed with gray paint. I take the warm, bloody flesh in my mouth and hold it. I chew, amazed that there is no urge to vomit or spit. I savor the taste that seems to calm my breathing and release the pain in my heart. Sarah smiles at me and says, Take of your holy offering. Realize that today, as every day from now on, is a new day, and that your life is as precious as was this one who feeds you now. Don't waste it. Oh, man. I've never really heard anything like that before. One of my goals with this podcast is I know that a lot of um, soldiers, when they come back, I've heard them in other podcasts, um, that they're really into hunting. And I would really love to have one on this show to kind of talk about that transition and and what they're getting from the hunt. Um, I've heard them describe it a little bit. It seems to be about, it's very similar to going into war. And I'd be curious to hear them maybe get into some more of the deeper feelings about what's going on from being in combat to being in nature and in pursuit of food and animal. Now, if I have to find a story of transformation, 
it would be how I went from living in New York City four years ago to now living in this cabin in the woods of Virginia. Four years ago, I felt like I was still a boy. Even at age 30, I had been struggling for about 10 years with my film career, which I started in college, but then the years after college trying to get it off the ground. I wrote scripts and tried to get them funded, tried to make money off of music videos and other stuff like that, and it never quite picked up. And that definitely added to an element of existential angst and frustration and anger. In the meantime, my life in New York was definitely quite alcohol-fueled. I mean, drinking from 16 in high school up into my mid to late 20s in New York, I mean, quite a, quite a lot of out-of-controlness, just blacking out to oblivion for 16 days in a row. Coming out of a blackout, being totally lost in some terrible neighborhood in Brooklyn or coming out of a blackout, standing on the roof across from my apartment and having no idea how I got up there, throwing potted plants down onto the sidewalk with some tough-looking guy screaming at me, I'm going to kill you. Coming out of a blackout, laying on the street in Lower East Side with some huge girl with a buzz cut, a punk girl sitting on top of me, just pummeling my face. So clearly, I, in my... In the nothingness, in the void, I had said something idiotic or I had done something stupid. You know, coming out of blackouts, having sex with some totally random person in a bathroom of a club, no idea who they are, no idea what I'm doing, and blacking out, and then the next scene. And, you know, it's, it, these things are amusing in your, when you're in college, but by the time I'm in my late 20s, I, you know, drinking a lot less. I stopped drinking by 30, but in those last few years, I would come out of the blackout and I'd be roaming the street on my way home and I'd be like furious and I'd be shocked and scared of, of how angry I was and what I was doing. I'd have my fists clenched and my teeth clenched and I'd just be like, just uh, like, just like screaming with my mouth shut, just like every terrible thing you could possibly say, shit, fuck, just everything. And I must have looked like a goddamn lunatic or a madman. So what was going on on the inside? Why was I so angry? Why did this demon come out when I would be unconscious, when I'd be intoxicated? What does this demon want to do? This shadow of myself. How can I incorporate this shadow in a way that's safe and not out of control and crazed and angry? So in the midst of this, as the film career is not quite working, I have a dream about drawing. And I haven't drawn in about 12 years. I stopped drawing as a kid while well, in my teens. So I start drawing again. And this seems to bring some life back. It kind of makes that depression start to fade. It kind of, I, I was at a point where I was starting to feel that life was no longer interesting. That it was, it was boring. And I was waiting for it to start and it was never starting. And I was being, being very nostalgic, thinking about how beautiful my childhood was and how beautiful high school was, you know, sneaking out at night to see my girlfriend, 
you know, in suburban, in the suburban streets with no cars and, you know, biking at night and going to see her with fireflies and um, staying up with her till four in the morning and then going, you know, going to high school at 6 a.m., having barely slept. You know, these things were starting to feel like they were so beautiful and never have these beautiful experiences again, that life had become dull. And I know through my basic Jungian perspective that nostalgia is a very dangerous emotion because nostalgia makes you not want to live in the present, makes you obsessed with the past, and it's kind of a poison. And that feeling I had of waiting for life to start, waiting for my film work to start, I'm going to read a quote right now, which really encapsulates that feeling. This is by Marie, Marie Louise von Franz, who is a Jungian, a friend and a, um, student of Carl Jung. And this excerpt is from Man and His Symbols. She writes, Nowadays, more and more people, especially those who live in large cities, suffer from a terrible emptiness and boredom as if they are waiting for something that never arrives. Movies and television, spectator sports and political excitements may divert them for a while, but again and again, exhausted and disenchanted, they have to return to the wasteland of their own lives. So that's where I was. I was right there. I started drawing. Based on this dream, I was forced into drawing, which was terrifying because I thought I sucked at it. And I started drawing every single day for 18 hours a day. And I was doing this for about a year or so. And this was bringing life again. This was bringing vitality and energy. I was connecting to my childhood again. And I suddenly started getting hired for work to illustrate. So this was just a new career path that had come from nothing. And through that, I made a book of herbal plants. It goes through each body system and shows the plants that help heal and this was in collaboration with my mother, who had been a longtime student of herbalism. And I illustrated it, and I decided, let's make something of this. Let's make it a coloring book and start selling it. And I created a platform for that on Instagram, and all of a sudden, it really started taking off. And out of nowhere, I really had a new, a new career path, and I started getting hired to do botanical illustrations. And I got hired by a big um, nonprofit, United Plant Savers, and my life started changing more and more until basically the, um, the woman who runs United Plant Savers offered me a cabin for the same price as my apartment in Brooklyn. And I knew deeply in my soul, the answer was yes. Yes. And I wrapped up my life in New York, boxed up the truck, wept, as I'm sure everyone does at the end of a long chapter of their life, and I drove down. And I was confused. Am I abandoning my life? Am I running away from a failed goal? And yet when I pulled up to the cabin at night in the moving truck by myself, I laid down in the bed that was already here furnished, and I knew that I was now a man. I was no longer a boy. A starter, man. I have a lot of work to do. I still do. That was three years ago, over three and a half years ago. But I knew there was a difference now. And in about that last six months in New York, I was so consumed with hunting 
I had to learn how to hunt. I had to know everything about it. And I found Meat Eater, which now is huge. I found Stephen Rinella's books. I read all the books. I listened to his podcast as it just started. Basically, I was getting all the instruction I needed on how to do these things. I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, and he was having on a lot of these epic hunting guys who hunt all over the world, bow hunt, and go on these adventures for 20 days at a time in in the wilderness. You know, this is so foreign to someone living in New York City for 10 years. I was listening to Daniel Vitalis' Rewild Yourself podcast, which was a little different and, and equally as powerful because it was showing all the aspects that we have domesticated ourselves and through different guests gave instruction on how to become a wilder person again, how to be more connected to our instincts. And in New York, I had zero connection to my instincts and to my body. So I moved down. Fortunately, my uncle has property. My mom and stepfather have property. And I was able to borrow their guns, their hunting guns, to learn how to hunt. And I basically taught myself. That first season, I moved down in September By November, the end of November, I was hunting already. I went and did the class and I got my first squirrels. Very intense experience killing my first animal. You know, they're so cute. And, and, you know, almost on the verge of tears and kind of out of breath to have killed. And that season, I got two deer. The one was um, a doe, the first one. And the second one was a button buck. What I learned from those experiences is the instincts that as a person, I'm very much in my head all the time. I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. And yet, oddly, I would connect this to making love. That when you can let go and let the instincts come through you as if you're just a vessel for them, it seems to have a power that you can't get with your ego you can't get with your worriedness. You can't get through it, the intellect. And I, the, the experience of this was that I felt every time hunting, it was, well, especially deer hunting, because you're waiting and waiting and waiting and so much time is going by. And finally, there's that moment and the deer is before you and you're up in your head thinking, um, steady your breathing, um, steady the scope or the first deer I got was with iron sights. So it was without a scope. It was with a lever action cowboy gun and, you know, get your gun steady. Is this, is this really the animal that I'm going to kill? Am I really going to do this? Do I have a safe backstop? Because you can't just fire a bullet with an animal has an open horizon behind it. You can't just fire a bullet at it because it could, if you miss, it could go flying over a hill. And I live in a, in a populated rural area. So you can't do that. So do I have a safe shot? On and on. All these things, um, a hunter and especially a novice hunter, especially a novice hunter without a mentor, has to be paying attention to. And yet when the moment comes, it's as if another power comes through you and just knows when to pull that trigger. And this has, when it's come through me, it's almost been perfect that all of my shots have been like a perfect, clean kill. No animal has been 
horribly wounded and got away and I had to track it forever. It's been these perfect shots and it almost feels like the instincts knows what it's doing and it comes through you and you almost don't even, you almost don't even remember what it has done. It just does it for you and it feels outside of oneself. And then of course, having to learn how to butcher animals, a powerful and a very intense experience, disturbing at first, and yet, as you see the breakdown of animal into meat, there's such a beauty in it. And I'm sure if you've listened to anything about hunting, you've already heard how powerful it is to consume meat that has a story that, that you have engaged with in nature and you've waited for and you've pursued. So those first two seasons, I did a lot of squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, and deer hunting. And I've gotten five deer now in those in the past three seasons. And this season, my third, I've become a trapper. I felt drawn to these metal traps that I was seeing at the hardware store, at the farm store. We have a store called, called um, Rural King. And it's kind of, it's almost funny. You can buy a camo bra there. You can buy um, some groceries and cleaning products, or you can buy guns, you can buy uh, tires, chickens, rabbits, basically all things country related. And they have traps there. So I kept looking at them and I was like, I don't know how I feel about these traps. There's something ominous about them. These chunks of metal with chains that clink, you know, is this what I want to do? I mean, I, I love animals. Why do I want to trap one? And yet I can't stop thinking about these traps. I've got to, I've got to pursue this. I start listening to all these trapping podcasts. I'm hearing the ethics of it. I'm trying to decide what kind of trapping do I want to do. I want to, and if I do this, I want to do it for food. I don't want to just get do it for the fur. So I buy a handful of traps. And I go and set up in a public piece of public land, a wildlife management area. And I just blindly set up a bunch of muskrat mink traps along this creek. Usually you would look for sign and then you would kind of decide your game plan based upon the sign. But I was just blindly setting them up in this creek, hoping something would happen. Two weeks go by and I'm not catching anything. And you have to check them every day by law. My girlfriend would come out with me to check them. And one day, from the parking area, somebody's little farm dog, I mean, the cutest little, I think it's an Australian shepherd dog, cutest little goddamn dog with like one little gray eye and one little blue eye sparkling. This guy follows us into the woods and it's like, this thing's so sweet. Like we almost just want to adopt this thing immediately. It comes following us in the woods and it comes all the way to my traps and it starts smelling them because the traps I've put lures um, and bait, you know, a little tiny piece of meat with some scents. The scents are kind of crazy. There's muskrat scent and mink scent. They're potent and the dog is smelling all around them. So I'm thinking, oh my God, we just led this dog to these curious scents. This kind of puppy, like now it's going to come back here when we leave and get stuck in one of these traps and I'm going to feel miserable. So I said, no, I'm going to close them all up. And then I did. 
but I didn't want to give up on the trapping. I was getting frustrated now that we're like two weeks into this. I really want to catch something. So I refocused and I, and I heard that basically one of the easiest things you can catch are raccoons. So I'm like, I'm just going to focus in on this. I go back to that wildlife management area and I decide to head in a different direction. I walk about half a mile, maybe three fourths of a mile and it connects to a creek. And I just have this intuition that this is the spot. There's a creek. I see a game trail. The game trail heads to a fence, which then goes into private property, which is a big open field. And there's a big dead tree, a big snag right there. And my feeling immediately is this is the spot because there might be raccoons living in that tree and they'll use this game trail, which clearly was not a deer game trail. It seemed much smaller. And they'll come down to the creek where they'll, they'll fish for you know crawfish or they'll come try and snag a frog or, or clean their food. I said, this is the spot. So I set two traps on that game trail. Both of them were the foothold traps. So these, these are where I was really ethically uncertain. You know, in, in books or in the past, those footholds would have had claws on them. They would have had teeth. That's illegal now. So it's not quite how you might think of it. And they now make traps that are much more ethically minded that are laminated or are offset or padded. The offset means it has a little gap. So when it snaps around the animal's foot, that it doesn't actually cut into their foot. It does not cut off their circulation. And all it is is holding them down. And some of these offset traps are actually used by biologists to capture, collar, and relocate animals from coyotes to otters. But basically, they've, they've captured otters in one place and brought them to another place and kind of created an, a new um, sustainable otter population through these methods. So that makes me feel better about these foothold traps, but I only had one that was padded and the other ones were not padded. But I'm so gung-ho, the trapping thing is still just kind of a fantasy. I haven't experienced it yet. I set up these two traps on this game trail. And I, I um, put um, lure on both of them. I, I spray around salmon oil. And I put a little bit of cat food in a little hole with a, a little stick with more lure on it, a raccoon scent. So I go check them. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. The fourth day I'm heading over there and I think, of well, probably nothing, just like always. It's pretty goddamn cold. We're in January now, and the, and the creek is, is completely frozen. It's just like sheets of ice. And as I start to approach, granted, I'm also carrying my little 22 rifle because if they're caught in a foothold trap, they're not going to be dead. So I'm carrying my little rifle. I come around the corner, and I see there's a raccoon yanking at the chain. 
And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Oh, man. It's not a fantasy anymore. It's not a cool old-time story about fur trappers in the, in the mountains in the early 1800s. This is real right now. I've got this beautiful raccoon. I don't really see raccoons that often. I've only probably seen them five times. And I've got to do something about it now. So I approach, and obviously this thing is scared of me. And, well, I raise my rifle, and I'm aiming at its head. And because I'm still new to firearms, and I'm not a very technical-minded person, so things like how to get your scope accurate, zeroing your scope can be quite confusing to me. Well, I pull the trigger and it hits low and it basically doesn't hit the raccoon's head. It hits it in the throat. And now the raccoon is thrashing around and hissing and kind of gurgling. And I mean, my stomach is in fucking knots. It is, I mean, my stomach is just like tied up and I shoot again. And again, it's not quite a headshot. It's another shitty shot. And this thing is just thrashing more. Kind of kind of going... <laughs> and now it's bleeding out. Bleeding out of its mouth. And I shoot again and again and again. Five times. And none of these shots are hitting where I'm aiming. This thing is still alive in front of me. And this is so awful. I mean, this is... I feel as if this is... One of the worst things I've ever experienced. And I just want this horrific moment to end. And I grab a huge branch and I just start, I, I slam it on the head. And maybe two or three times I hit it in the head until it stops. And I'm shaken. What I think happened is because my 22 has a scope on it and it's, the scope is sighted to 50 yards away, that when you're shooting basically one foot away, that the bullet has not arisen to where the scope is aligned. So I was where I'm aiming is not where the bullet is going because it's too close. So I was aiming at its head and it was shooting lower. So instead of the quick kill that a hunter wants, this was a drawn out, awful thing to put an animal through. An incredible, incredible little creature. And already in this moment, I feel that this is very different than the hunting. The hunting feels, I guess, quite noble. Whereas standing in front of a creature whose foot is stuck in a trap, I felt like an executioner. And I did not like that. So I take the raccoon out of the little trap. I see that its hand was indeed damaged. I saw that it ate the cat food. I saw that it took a shit there. I saw that it scratched up some trees while trying to get away. I look at my second trap and there's a dead possum. My feeling is the possum got caught in it and probably died from the cold because it was a super, it was a sub-freezing night. So I've got these two creatures, one in each hand and my 22 rifle and a backpack. And I'm trying to walk all of this back the half or three quarters of a mile back to the car. And they're actually quite heavy. And 
trying to balance them and my rifle, it was very clumsy. And I'm like really rattled. And I get home. I, sh- I get back to the cabin. I show them to my girlfriend, who's now living with me down here. She's been here for a year. And she's, she's pretty blown away to see these things, but she is not as horrified as I seem to be about myself. And I go through the motions, you know, you need to skin this thing pretty, pretty soon. So I hang them up and I skin them and I get that all done. And I, I stretch them onto, I went out and bought, um, earlier in preparation, I had bought the proper, um, beams that you stretch the hides on when you're, when you're a fur trapper. And I pinned them up, stretched them. And I was just so shaken and really disturbed. I think I was disturbed at myself, at what I'm capable of doing. How can I love animals and love nature and yet put an animal through that experience? I don't know how to answer that question. And over the course of the days where I'm looking into our sunroom and the raccoon hide is hanging and drying, it's, I, I notice I don't even want to look at the raccoon hide, that I'm ashamed. And the raccoon, it's still in our freezer, the raccoon and the possum meat, and I have yet to cook them. I'm a little nervous to cook them partly because both of them are not traditionally thought of as food sources. I do know that I've heard in a podcast that uh, raccoon were were hunted even in slave times by African-Americans and that in the South there is a history of eating raccoon. So I want to find one of those recipes and cook it up, but I haven't done that yet. So... There was something about the the trapping that was just really much more raw. Much more up close and raw than the hunting. And very shortly after catching those two creatures, I was vending my wildlife art at a wildlife festival in Virginia. And we went to a restaurant when the festival ended, a seafood restaurant. And it was a little small place. This is in Norfolk, Virginia. And then when we were about to leave, it was almost closing time. I went to the bathroom. In the bathroom, there was a huge antlered, um, a shoulder mount of a big antlered buck with amazing antlers. When I came out of the bathroom, I saw the chef was talking to someone at the bar. And I said, hey, is that your, is that your buck? Are you a hunter? And he said, oh, yeah, are you a hunter? And so we started talking. I told him about this intense experience with the trapping. And he said, oh, yeah, man. He's like, I, I don't have, I understand the trapping, but I, I just, it's too much for me. And he said something that I'll never forget for the rest of my life, which is trapping is hard on a man's soul. I mean, that just gives me chills just saying that. There was something about it that seems to crack my soul and heart open. I've just felt so raw. And yet I wanted to try it again and see if there's something else in this. And I want to focus in on the muskrats 
because the traps are not foothold traps. They're quick kill, like a mouse trap. They're a body trap. They swim through it, they hit a little trigger, and it snaps around them. So I'm going to try this. I'm going to drive around the country. I'm going to look for who property owners that have ponds on their property, and I'm going to ask them if they have a mu- too many muskrats and if I could possibly come by and trap them because we'll eat them. I knock on a bunch of doors. A lot of people kind of just don't know what I'm talking about. I'm driving around, and finally I come upon this one property that has a huge lake on it. I mean, it's not quite a lake, but I don't know. It's in between. It's not a pond. You think of a pond, you think of a tiny thing. This is more of like a lake pond. It's pretty damn big. It has a little island in its center. And I come upon this property. I'm driving around their long driveway. There's like a big, I don't know what you would call it, a manor house at one end. And finally, this guy in his 40s comes out of one of the side houses. And I tell him, hey, do you got muskrats? And he says, you know what? We've got beavers here. We've had someone trap beavers, but we need somebody because these beavers are causing all sorts of damage. We've got a bunch of flooding. They're cutting down all the trees. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. So I just said yes. And I went out and I bought beaver traps. I came back and a few days later and I checked out the pond. Basically, there was a pond with a beaver lodge Some of the people living on the properties had come to the point of just shooting the beavers and just letting them rot in the pond. So I thought, what I'm doing is is ethically better. Because if these things are going to be killed because they're seen like someone in New York City, they'd be seen as like a rat problem. So to these country people, this is a beaver problem. And they were resorting to just shooting them. So my thought is, well, I'm going to trap them. They're going to die instantaneously and I'm going to eat them, and I'm going to save their fur. So this is ethically more sound. So there's the lodge, there's the pond. The pond drains out into a stream. This whole grassy area is completely flooded. It almost touches this main country road, and then it kind of connects back into into a little raging stream. And you can see what they mean by this, this damage. I mean, so many of the trees are chopped down. I mean, it, the beavers are quite an astonishing creature because it literally looks like a man's construction site. There are roads. There are like well-worn paths from the beaver lodge to different dams, like overland, completely worn out. There's no grass in these paths. They're like a well-worked road. All these trees, all this timber is cut down. There's um, not sawdust, but there are chips. There are wood chips all over the place. It's astonishing. It's really impressive. And I set up two traps down where the man first showed me below all the dams and where the grasses were all flooded. The first night, I catch one. The second day, I catch two. These ones much, much, much larger. They're huge. They're shockingly huge. These are clearly the adults that I caught on the second day. I walk up to the lodge. I see I put a trap at the lodge entrance. There's another one. So the first day I caught one small one. The second day I caught three, the two adults, and another small one. 
lot of work to come home and, and skin all of these kind of in one go to package up the meat. My girlfriend helps. I don't have too much feelings on this yet. When my girlfriend helped me pick up those, she actually was with me to check the line when, when there was the three on the second day and she helped me. She was carrying the beavers back to the car. There was not a heavy feeling with this. There was no heavy feeling with this. The heavy feelings came in the days to come when we started watching beaver documentaries. I started learning that the beaver is an incredible wildlife landscape, I don't know, rejuvenator. Basically, when they create their dams, this water that backs up creates a swamp. And the swamp is like a mecca for wildlife. You'll have more birds coming in, ducks, deer. Um, Certain vegetation will grow back. And not only that, but they live in family units. Usually the two parents, which I believe will mate for life, and their kids. And I think the kids stay for like two years or so, and then the kids go off and they create their own colonies. So as I learned more about, about the beaver that's when the guilt started coming in. Am I massacring a whole family of creatures? Is that what I just did here? And I'm starting to feel, whereas the raccoon trapping felt like an executioner instead of a hunter. Now I'm starting to feel like an exterminator. This farmer wants me to get rid of all these beavers. I kind of say yes because I want the experience I want this food I only got one deer on this third year and this beaver meat is going to basically be about another deer worth of food but I don't want to kill an entire colony of animals I don't want to do that I mean not only do I want to maybe come back the next year and get more beaver I just don't want to just completely wipe something out so I kind of keep going back and not even really setting the traps. I'd set some, but I'd put them really far away, kind of hoping I didn't actually catch another beaver. One of these days, I did set a trap in a really deep run, and it had rained super hard, and the water was just rushing. And I see that this something has happened with a stick that the trap is connected through. And I got waders on and I climb into this deep little pool, which is about waist deep. And I reach down for my trap and I, I can, I have a sense there's something in it, another beaver. And I pull it up to the surface and it takes my brain seconds to realize what I'm looking at. What is this? It's an otter, a river otter. And I'm kind of just stunned. I kind of just set it on the, on the bank and I just sit on the bank and I'm like, now what? I didn't want to kill a river otter. I've only seen them once. I saw them as a kid camping and canoeing on the Shenandoah River. I don't think I'm going to eat an otter, but I just killed one. I know that their fur is really prized. It's super soft and silvery. This is a member of my favorite animal group, the mustelids. Mustelids. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but those are all the weasels, so... Wolverine, mink, marten, weasel, badger, skunk, otter, fisher. 
So this is one of my favorite animals, and you don't see them very much because they're all very nocturnal, even though they live around here. And it is a legal catch. You're allowed to trap otters in Virginia. But in in the back of my mind, I'm going to eat the raccoon at some point, but I don't think I'm going to eat this otter. So what am I going to do with this? A moral dilemma. I don't feel heavy about it. But I, I want to do, I, I just want to honor this creature in some way, shape, or form. So what comes to me is to get it taxidermied. That let's have this as the centerpiece for our house, which it will be a daily reminder of, first and foremost, an incredible animal. Secondly, my actions and the repercussions of my actions as a hunter, trapper, outdoorsman. And addressing the moral ambiguity of what I do. For another week, I kind of have the traps over at that property. And I put one last trap in this channel. into It's like a tiny little rivulet that connects the side of the pond to the stream. And I'm driving over there to check the trap. I don't think anything's going to be in it. It's a little later than usual. It's getting a little sunny, so it's going to, it's getting warmer. So if there is an animal in it, you know, it's been sitting out for a while now. But I thought there'd be nothing there. And I'm driving over there, and I'm just so raw. I'm torn up. I'm on the verge of tears. I just, you know, I'm having trouble sleeping every night. I'm just thinking about the beavers. Am I like one of these, these weasels? Weasels are known to be berserkers. Weasels are known to surplus kill, to kill more than they need to eat. You know, you'll hear people say that animals don't kill other than for food, and that's completely untrue. And weasels is a family group that is one of the clearest examples of that. They'll do what's called hen housing. Well, they'll go in to a nest or whatnot, and they'll just raid it and they'll destroy everything. A river otter will go into a pond and kill all the fish and even though it's not going to eat them. And so they just get bloodlust. And uh, is that what I'm doing? I'm killing all these beavers, killing this entire family of beavers. And I'm just so raw from this. Like, I just feel so, I don't know how to describe it other than raw. I just feel so um, sensitive. Like I could just start crying at any second. I'm kind of like spaced out. And I drive up to this area and I pull up. I go check the traps and lo and behold, there's another small one in the trap. And this raw feeling, this sensitivity, this um, verge of tears vanishes, instantly vanishes when I see the reality of the, the fifth beaver in the trap. And it doesn't come back. It's as if being grounded back into the reality of what I'm doing and getting my food this way and creating furs, furs that we're going to end up using to make probably hats and headbands and maybe gloves. It went away. I don't know why. Days later, I go back to clean everything up to kind of stop the trapping there. And my girlfriend comes with me and we walk up to the beaver lodge and I see a small beaver go ripping out of that lodge and disappear into the deep water of the pond. And this made me so happy to know that I had not killed all of the beavers. I felt this was just, it was just wonderful to know that I had not destroyed them. And obviously it's awkward. The farmer does not want them to be there. 
So I kind of didn't quite lie, but I just told him that the beavers are getting trap shy, which they obviously were. I caught a bunch in two days and then didn't catch more for, for a week or so. This is where I'm at. This is where I'm at right now. Trapping's hard on a man's soul. When I look back at all of this, I'm reminded of an odd, perhaps numinous experience back in New York City. I don't remember how long ago it was. Was it six years ago when The Revenant came out? That's the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he is a a fur trapper. I think the guy's name is Hugh Glass, who was attacked by a bear in the wilderness. And kind of, it's a story of survival. When I saw this movie back in New York, I, fur trapping was not even really in my historical awareness. I don't even think I really registered that that's what the characters in the film are. It's not really addressed. Other than in the beginning, you see them with pelts, but you never really see the fur trapping. When I saw The Revenant all those years ago in the theater in New York City, before I started studying hunting, before I knew anything about trapping, in the opening of the movie... The men are hunting elk, and then they come back down to their fur camp where other men are preparing the furs. And shortly, a Native American tribe rides down and proceeds to slaughter them. And they have this battle where the fur trappers escape onto a boat and head off river. During this scene, once the fighting starts, my body started shaking and I felt as though I had to get up and run. I had to get out of the movie theater. I felt like I was going to scream and that a memory was coming up from in my root, like in my waist, a memory was coming up and the memory was, I've done this. I've lived this already. I did this in a past life and it was so fucking terrifying and overwhelming And when the fur trappers escaped on the boat, the the feeling, it went away. So what was that? Is that a past life experience that now I'm connecting with in, in real life? Is it your soul telling me where I need to go? The direction to find my wholeness? What is that? What was that experience? Well, thank you for listening to this first episode and listening to my story. I hope that it was worth listening to and that there was something perhaps meaningful in it. From starting as a New York boy, struggling to kind of grow up and be a man, to, I guess, becoming a beginner man here in the woods, and to find through killing and consuming, to find love, to find love for the animals, love for nature and the landscape, and to find love for life. I'm no longer waiting for life to start. I'm living it. I'm in it. I'm in life. And I'm in love with life. And each interaction on a daily basis just fills that more. From watching the way that the plants around the cabin move in the wind. It's as if 
they're trying to wave at you or speak to you. They're spirit-filled. Or to see the hummingbirds buzz around the porch. And then to see the bear. You know, I saw one last week while looking for morels. I walked up on two bear cubs. And while I don't expect my future guests to necessarily be as raw as me, I just hope and pray to hear their stories of what nature has done for their life and what they've learned from it. I've got a lot of confirmations already for the podcast. Hopefully after they listen to this, they don't decline. (laughs) But looks like I'm going to have some herbalists on, some homesteaders. My uncle, who grew up in uh, New England, hunting and trapping and canoeing and just being a boy of the, I don't know what, 1940s, 1950s. Going to hear from a fly fishing instructor who grew up in Virginia, um, a bear hunter and bear hunting advocate. I hope to get natural dyers on here. I hope to get perfumers. I hope to get healers, nature healers. I hope to get primitive skills people. Just really anyone who nature is a huge part of who they are and their lifestyle. I want to hear what they've experienced and what they've learned. Thanks again. See you next time.